0: we'd like to introduce our first guest. Oh, well, Diana, why don't you introduce yourself?
1: Hi, good evening, I'm Diana Rickard. I am a doctoral research fellow with the MU Center for Health Ethics and PhD student in the MU Informatics Institute.
0: Well, welcome to the big electron. Thank you. Um, So something kind of cool is coming up in your field, right? That you're here to talk to us today about, and that is?
1: Yes, so April 16th, this Mm -hmm. Saturday is National Healthcare Decisions Day. And it is a really grassroots movement of a lot of organizations and health systems um, uh, uh, promoting the uh, process of advanced care planning.
0: So what exactly uh, is this movement trying to, if there were one goal, I know it's hard to boil down a grassroots movement Mm -hmm. to one goal. But if you could think of one goal that you would like to see come out of it, what would that be?
1: Sure, it'd be promoting the conversation of uh, the conversation between family members and loved ones um, and also bringing in your uh, physician of what um, what quality of life means to you and when uh, your life gets to a point where you are no longer able to make decisions for yourself, what medical interventions would you, would you or would you not want to have and having that conversation between um, your family members and loved ones so they can advocate for you.
0: So it's really getting kind of like things in line for when what we don't want to happen may happen.
1: Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. It's not a comfortable subject to talk about or it to think really about. It is really uncomfortable. But, <laughs> but it seems like a lot of things
2: to think about too. Like do you have to go through and um answer
1: would I like to be this? Would I like to be that? You know, how involved is it? Sure. So advanced directives or living wills, they come in a variety of shapes and sizes and formats. And we're now moving towards some online educational modules. Um, but traditionally, it's paper-based or um, booklet um, done in a pamphlet. And so they, they look they look at many, many different ways. Um, sometimes some of the advanced directives have you opt into services or medical interventions. Some have you opt out. Some provide you more Um, autonomy to provide a narrative of what um, what you would like to see happen or what your preferences or beliefs are. Some are much more structured. Hmm. So you could even say like, these are the things
2: that I value. And is that what you mean by narrative? Like I tell you what I care about and what's important to me. And then based on that, the people interpret well, you know, in this weird, crazy situation we
1: now find ourselves in. This is probably what that person would have wanted. Absolutely, and those narratives are extremely valuable to the medical providers because um, it helps provide a story, and, and the patients are no longer to um, advocate for themselves, and so, and so they um, they provide this narrative of what what is important to them. Um, so it really um, provides that back um, background information, um, and is is very valuable to the providers in in uh, providing that care intervention. So how. When
3: should we start on this to start planning for uh, for an advanced directive? Is it just people, you know, when, when you get diagnosed with a disease, when you're like retired, when should we,
1: when can people start planning on this? Yeah. So that's a great question. I think traditionally um, the older population has uh, completed or gone through advanced care planning when they are preparing their wills or trustees of their um, estates. But um, ideally, advanced care planning is promoted for any adult over the age of 18 or anyone facing a chronic um, or terminal disease. Um, it's never too early to begin planning to have these documents in place, and then should a medical um, diagnosis arise, you can update those plans um, accordingly. Wow. So how prevalent
0: are these conversations already? Are, are we pretty set? Are we, is it just like getting this last you know, a couple people to do it so that everybody's covered or yeah. is this really lacking?
1: It is very, it, it is lacking. It is a, um, a large public health um, issue right now. So currently one in four adults has an advanced directive. And of those one in four adults that has uh, the advanced directive, it is a very, uh, very small population that actually has their advanced, has provided their advanced directive to their medical provider to, to be able to recall it out of the um, their electronic health record. So um, yes, we, we we have a we have a very low adoption rate, and there's so there's a lot of promotion occurring. Um, as of January one of this year, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services began reimbursing providers for having these conversations with patients, and so we may see those on Medicare um, being prompted to participate in this activity with their provider, um, and so we are seeing an, an increase in. Um, we are are seeing an increase in in health systems beginning to engage in this activity where they previously had not because there was no reimbursement for it. Hmm. So how can we get started
3: on this if, you know, let's say the four of us now want to go in and get started on that? Can we do that online? Can we do that? Do we have to go to to our provider and then start the conversation there or... Do I need an attorney? What are I what what's required for this? Can I just write it in my journal and
2: like <laughs> call
1: it good? Cuz that that would be doable. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure but it on Facebook <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like it's going to just be an entry in my lab notebook like <laughs> late at night when I like I'm pretty sure this is where it all ends. <laughs>
1: So um, ideally, uh, there's a number of different resources that are out there. The Missouri Attorney General, um, Chris Coster, they put out, put out a free resource that you can request a copy either by phone or online. Um, it's called the Life Choices Workbook. It's it's a lengthy workbook, um, and it, it's not very interactive. So in, if you have a good idea of what your end-of-life decisions already are going to be, that might be suitable for you. Um, and it Um, But otherwise, there are a number of forms that you can um, go online. There's web-based tutorials um, that you can navigate through to create the advanced directive, also known as a living will. And then the second form that you'll want to create is a durable power of attorney. Uh, it's also known as a healthcare proxy or surrogate decision maker, and that's where you appoint a person and potentially a, a backup or two um, mm-hmm. for the person who would speak for you and make those decisions. And then those forms, the durable power of attorney does need to be notarized with a couple witness signatures, and the advance uh, directive in the state of Missouri just needs to be um, have those witness signatures. And then ideally you'll share those um, documents. Um, you'll share the documents, you'll, and you'll have the conversation with your family and loved ones, just letting them know. Uh, what your what you found that your wishes were for um, when that time comes, how they can retrieve those documents, where you're storing them, and then also taking them to um, your a- annual wellness visit with your provider and providing them a copy of it so that they can get it in the medical chart. You
2: know, I find this really interesting because like I've had the co- the quote unquote conversation with the DMV. Like I want to be a d- an organ donor. Yeah, that was such an easy thing for me to just sign on the back of my driver's license and now, you know, at least in theory, that's what they should do. And so it's really just an extension of the same the same idea. Like, you know, what would I like to be done with me?
0: So mm. I have a question. Um, so your health care proxy, I guess, if you're not in a position to do so, do you need their permission to assign them as your health care proxy? Mm. No. <laughs> <Dang>. <laughs> but ideally you should. I mean, I would want it to be someone that I
1: no and yeah.
0: communicate with yeah. but you could just drop that information on
1: someone <laughs> absolutely and and in some of these web-based modules i mean they really get into the crux of what quality of life and uh, and your preferences and your beliefs what's important to you is rather than focusing on what the medical interventions um mm-hmm. Could potentially be, and so uh, with that in the in the durable power of attorney or healthcare proxy, um, you're able to provide a statement to the circuit of saying, you know, this is why I chose you, and I think that you would, um, and I know that you will make the right decision, and um, to provide them a little bit more um, the opportunity for narrative of um, being able to advocate for them to support what you've written. Mm -hmm. So, what are the
3: consequences of this not happening? So, you're saying one in four. So we have other uh, three quarters of the population that don't have this. So what are some of the consequences that are to happen when this is not?
1: Sure. So we find that over 25% of Medicare spending is uh, spent in the last six months of life um, and that there is a little increase in the quality of life um, based on those costs. And so we are providing extremely costly, burdensome care Mm -hmm. that is not improving the quality of life. Um, for the patients uh, we also find that there is higher caregiver or familial distress um, with not having a document or a guide to help the family members make um, those priorities known um, and then um, there's simply um, there's a, a lot of back and forth um, mm-hmm. between the medical care providers and the medical treatment team of what route to go um, rather than having uh, the patient preferences known and being able to act on those. Hmm. So more stress for everyone, more money for everyone. In an
0: already emotional situation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: You can only imagine. Yeah. yeah.
2: And at that point, like, you don't even have control anymore. Right. You know, like, even the selfish part of me
3: <laughs> would rather my thoughts be known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so you're saying uh, National Healthcare Decisions Day is April 16th, which will be the Saturday. Um, And then there are a couple of websites, right, that people can go through. If they just Google it, National Healthcare Decisions Day, Dot com.
1: Mm-hmm. And then oh, okay. The, there yes, we go. Yes, nice. National Health Care Decisions Day dot com. And that will direct you out to a number of different resources and platforms for if you're a care provider, if you're a patient, um, or if you're a caregiver to help support um, the patient whom you are caring for. Um, there's also the Conversation Project, which has a conversation uh, that's more focused on the conversation of actually how, how do we approach these conversations and um, how do I talk to um, my aging parents about helping them prepare for their future medical decision making um, and that provides a really good toolkit for both um, on the provider side and on the family side um, and then if you're if you're ready to go ahead and make an advanced directive um, I would um, recommend making your and it's an online web-based tutorial and it takes you through some guided scenarios and provides you um, with if if you had this type of diagnosis and were given this long um, or expected um, to recover 50% what medical interventions would you say that you would um, like and then it also has the opportunity to provide a lot of narrative along the way to support it and then at the end it um, outputs with the creation of a pdf document which could then be printed and notarized Mm and signed and And so on and so forth mm -hmm. you save it and then
2: you're good to go. Okay, so I have a question. Um, we've talked about how the U.S. is kind of a uh, afraid, basically, of death, right? So that's
1: that's part of where this is stemming from. Do other countries do a better job of this? Yeah. So that's something that I'm exploring um, in my research. So yes, um, numerous studies, countless studies out there show that um, America is definitely a death denying culture. And due to a lot of the advancements in medicine and technology, um, you know, we have an illness, we go to the doctor, we expect to be treated, mm-hmm. we expect to have a good outcome and return to the um, the life that we are accustomed to. Um, and so when these... Um, and when these terminal instances happen um, we again rely on the medical community and care providers um, as we have in the past and expect to be treated cared for um, and to return to that same quality of life rather than accepting that it potentially is the end of life um, and to help to make um, that transition um, how the how the patient would best um, envision it and want it to be Um, so other countries um, Definitely um, looking at other ethnic and cultural um, backgrounds, um, maybe do a poor job at actually having the conversation to mm-hmm. where um, younger uh, or maybe the children of an elderly individual would make the care decisions without informing the elderly mm. uh, mother or father. Um, so they might not even be aware of their illness Um, Wow. Mm Wow! Or um, there's many other countries that have these conversations very openly. Um, It's documented in a much different way. So it definitely varies all across. Um, But I would say that America is the most (laughs) death denying (laughs) um, group of them all thus far. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I've also read that... um, if you ask
2: a physician, like, you know, what would you want? If you were, if you came down with a terminal illness, would you want this aggressive treatment or would you rather have palliative care? And a lot of them say they would rather have the palliative care. So that being like, you know, just making them comfortable. What, what else would that entail? Like some, some pain suppression and stuff like that. And just making sure that they, if they're going to pass, that they pass in a way that um, them and their family um, is comfortable with. And so that's part of what this is about too, right? Like giving people the option to do that if that's what they would rather do.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah so a number of studies have shown um, that if they if patients uh, so one if they are asked to um, complete an advanced directive if they haven't previously already most of them are willing to have these conversations and to start the documentation they just simply didn't know where to begin mm-hmm. um, otherwise it when queried most individuals would prefer to pass away at home and most individuals would choose comfort-oriented pathways of care for their end of life which um, decreases familial distress and burden um, and um, of of those around them, um, so I think that the um, providers do have. Um, we are we are finding that it's challenging for many providers um, to break that bad news to the patients, mm-hmm. um, based on a number of um, different factors and influences. Yeah, that's got to be tough because they even get trained in that,
2: right? Like in medical school, I know they have to go through at least some degree of training for. Really difficult conversations, and so you know, even our even our experts have a hard time with it. So I think it's kind of reasonable that, you know, I have a hard time asking my family member what it would be in theory that they would want.
0: Absolutely, and it's really hard for like a child to ask a parent. Yeah, I mean, either way, I guess. Sure. I wouldn't want to ask my parents,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but I really need to know. Uh huh. In, you know, in case something happens. Mm-hmm.
1: And this is one of those things that you can, you know, you can have this conversation once. You can mm-hmm. have this conversation once a year. You could have it once, period. But as long as you've had the conversation and, and uh, you know, a number of these online um, guides can it can help you with kind of some bridge questions on breaking the subject or, you know, approaching the subject mm-hmm. and how to, um, how to how to how to kind of move in um, cautiously and carefully, because we we understand this is a very sensitive topic, but it is a necessary conversation that you need to know of, where do you you keep these documents? Mm -hmm. Have you you created it? Um, And and what does it say Um, so that you can best support them if and when that time comes?
0: I'm just going to use this radio show. Mom and dad, if you're listening, <laughs> get it ready.
3: <laughs> really? You're using this medium? Apologies for your daughter. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, thank you, Dinah, so much. This was this was really, really informative. And um, just, you know, time, six days, this is where we're going to see hopefully a lot of it. And hopefully the media covers it because it's, it's something that, that affects a lot of... You the know area. affects most of us at some point. Well affects or not we're most ready. of us, but you know, it's like as mm-hmm. you were saying, it's public health, it's yeah. economics, it's money, it's stress, and it's all these other things that, that we could we could be preventing. So uh thank you so much for thank being you. here. Uh we're gonna go on our musical break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the big electron on KCAU eighty eight point one FM. Welcome back to the V-Electron on KCAU 88.1 FM. Thank you for listening. As we said at the beginning of the show, we have two guests um, for today. Uh, the first one was Diana. And the second one is Dr. Paula Stefan, And she yes. is a professor who will actually be coming to Mizzou uh, this week, this coming week. Um, and we're going to talk to her prior to her lecture here in a couple of days. right? Yes.
0: And so. just before I let you go on any further and before you can interrupt me, I'm going to wish Bernie no. happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> okay. Okay. We can move on though. But yes, um, <laughs> Dr. Paula Steven will be calling and, um, Dr. Steven is a professor of economics. So before, um, we get her on the phone, Adam, you have a little something for us, right?
4: Well, um, yeah. Yeah, actually, so, I can't claim credit for this one, uh, Jackie.
3: <laughs> yeah, so uh, just a quick thing. Uh, the reason why we're talking about this, uh, she is studies, she's a professor of economics, but she studies um, economics of science. She actually published... A book uh, called *The Economics of Science*, um, and so oh, I'm sorry, *How Economics Shapes Science*. Um, this was published by the Harvard University Press, and so uh, she's she that's uh, where her she her, she studies, and um, that's what she does for um, yeah. Sorry, okay, so, so
4: Adam. Yeah, so the uh, we decided to sort of. Uh, introduce this subject a little bit actually mm-hmm. going the opposite direction uh not so much e- how economics shapes science but how science shapes economics mm-hmm. uh, in terms of sort of the downstream effects um of science on the rest of the economy
5: Interesting.
4: Uh, so we're making reference here to a to an article from um from nature um which is actually from 2010 which in terms of scientific article publishing is like well think <laughs> about your latest updates to your computers it's kind of like that it's mm-hmm. like 2010 is
2: You'd really many, rather many, it be more recent. <laughs> we really would,
4: but you know, this is what we have, and it's it's actually a really good um, suggestion of the state of um, the state of this particular art in terms of what we know the effects of science uh, on <coughs> economics are, which is that we don't know much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we it's sort of a common popular theory, especially among scientists like like us. You know, yep. we work in yeah. the sciences. Um, we. Have this popular theory that what we're doing is going to have downstream benefits uh, and spur all sorts of investment and research and, absolutely. and economic growth. We're the
0: best. I mean, and when I think of a cure to yeah. some disease, then that saves all that money on, mm-hmm. you know, health On the other treatments
4: that oh, would yeah. have been happening. Absolutely. And I I think you can find individual cases where that is absolutely a fact. Mm-hmm. Especially the um,
2: NASA. And oh, going yeah. to the moon and everything, you know, they talk a lot about that and how great that was for the whole economy yeah. and people even not related.
4: Right. I think the the main idea of this article, though, which is more of a skeptical uh, mm-hmm. kind of point of view, is not so much that that's incorrect, because clearly in certain individual cases it is, but just that science is really big and it does a lot of different things and not every scientific endeavor is gonna result in a new company being founded that takes advantage of this and makes a billion dollars mm-hmm. or and employs
2: um, eighty people. Yeah it employs oh, yeah.
4: eighty people, eighty thousand people. <laughs> Some of these are gonna be duds. And yeah. that happens too. And it's very different from industry to industry. Um it talked about we have really good correlations that we can make between the um the dollars that we put into research in plant sciences and the downstream economic benefits for agriculture Mm -hmm. like that's really well studied but um in terms of the effects on medicine for example you know your your net cost your net benefit and so on it's really fuzzy Uh um you have to take it on a case-by-case basis and it's not really fair to to make a blanket one-size-fits-all statement that investing this money, this many dollars is going to result in this many dollars profit for some other company down the line. It's really not a simple process and we have a lot less information than we would like. So,
2: so then the prescription is more science, more
4: studies, more (laughs) science about science, science about science, about science, science about money. Um, (laughs) so, uh, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to get a little bit of more knowledge just here in a few minutes but in addition
0: from the expert from the expert.
4: <laughs> but um yeah science shapes economics and and vice versa so it's uh not always perfectly clear how so there's a lot of a lot of stuff we have to learn so hopefully we can do that
3: awesome and speaking of experts uh we actually have dr paula stefan with us today hello hi how are you thank you for being here with us I'm
0: just fine.
6: Thank you for inviting me to speak with you.
0: We are so excited that you're coming, um, that you're one on our show, but also that you'll be in Mizzou or here at Mizzou.
6: Well, I'm really looking forward to coming to Mizzou and to meeting you all and, and talking with some graduate students and postdoctoral fellows there.
3: Great. So to get us started, um, could you tell us a little bit about your background, um, you, we mentioned that you're a professor at Georgia State University, uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about that?
6: Oh, well, I'm a professor of economics at Georgia State University, and I'm a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I've, um, I've been studying issues related to science for approximately, hmm, up to, for over 35 years. Wow. And this, this kind of odd path for an economist to take started um, in the very late 1970s. Do you want me to tell you a little bit about how I, how I got on this path? Absolutely. That was going to
3: be my next question, so yes. <laughs> so
6: so I, was at, I was on a review panel at NSF, and a program director at NSF said to me, um, Paula, you know, the question that's of real, of real importance to the United States is the relationship between scientific productivity and the age of scientists. <laughs> and he, and the reason that he brought this up is that, first of all, um, as you may say, well be aware, or some of your listeners may be aware, there's a belief in science that, um, that science is a young person's game. So this was probably expressed, um, or, or one person who expressed this rather well, with a bit of humor, dark humor, was the <laughs> physicist Dirac, who said, age is, of course, a fever chill, but every physicist must fear. He's better dead than living still. When once he's past his thirtieth year. Wow, <laughs> that's harsh. So I'm, I mean, I'm gonna that's pretty dark. That. Uh, <laughs> and that the reason that this person at NSF mentioned it in the late 1970s was that the U.S. research workforce, particularly at universities of faculty, was really aging. And the reason it was aging was that. Um, hiring for new hires at universities had really declined beginning in the very late 1960s and going into the 1970s. So if you don't have many new people coming in and you have people just aging, the workforce got older. Mm -hmm. So he challenged me to think about studying this from an economics perspective and particularly from thinking about the kind of data one would need and until that point, most people who had looked at this question had been sociologists and they'd been using what we, as economists, would call cross-section data. In other words, they hadn't followed people over time and they weren't able to control for individual effects, etc. Hmm. So with, a, with someone I went to graduate school with at the University of Michigan, who's, um, whose career has been at the University of Missouri at St. Louis, Sharon Levin, she and I set out to try to think about this and it ended up being a long road (laughs) that got me very involved using NSF longitudinal data and becoming very kind of embedded in research questions related to science and the scientific workforce. So that's really how how I got into this and since then I've looked at a number of issues related um, to the scientific workforce, such as, and one of the things I'll talk about um, this coming week is the career prospects for recently minted PhDs. And, something that
0: we really care about in this room. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>
6: something that, that I care about and that I think a number of, of people are thinking a lot about, and so I'll talk about that, and um, because I'm... Because I've spent so much time looking at a lot of this data, I end up on a number of, of National Academy committees to that study issues related to the workforce. So one of the things I'll also talk about is the National Academy's most recent study that we issued this report in, I think, November of 2014, which is the postdoctoral experience revisited. And I was a member of that committee, and uh, I I plan to talk some about that. And other than my focus particularly on workforce outcomes, I've been particularly also interested in the role of foreign-born in science, um, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S., and I've also been interested in issues um, related to gender in science.
0: Ooh, I'm kind of interested in the gender in science. A lot of it, and
2: all of
1: it.
0: yeah, yeah, all (laughs) of it. Yeah, I shouldn't limit it to one part. Yeah,
3: I think everything sounds. (laughs) Yeah, can can you come and teach here? I mean, can we just like talk to you every day? Like, just (laughs) sound like you're super interesting.
0: (laughs) I think we need a new host on the show. Like, we're just gonna add you in.
6: So, well, it's well, the thing I like about what I study is I get to. I get to work with people in lots of different disciplines, mm-hmm. and I get to meet different, lots of different kinds of people, and, um, and a number of young people in the beginning of their career, and that's particularly rewarding for somebody at my stage of my career.
4: Well, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to start off and ask a, a question to follow up on that, that first study you mentioned about the, the workforce and, and the age of the scientists doing mm-hmm. it. Do you find that there's a trend right now going the opposite direction of when you were, when you were first looking at this issue? Uh, do you find that the, the workforce in, in research departments is getting younger because universities might be looking to hire uh, cheaper?
2: Yeah,
6: cheaper labor. Yeah. Well, I think there, there are two parts to that question, right? If we look at who's... Um, we look at faculty positions, let's look at it in different parts, okay? Mm-hmm. If, if, if I were to show you NIH data right now on who's getting funded at NIH, what we would see is that it's gotten more and more extreme and that the age distribution in terms of who's being funded at NIH has increased dramatically in the last um, 15 to 20 years. So just for example, in, in 1983, about 18% of all principal investigators um, from getting NIH funding were under 35. And today, something like only 1.5% are. Oh, and wow. in, Whoa, and what? in 2010, um, the percent of people over 65 Well, let me say it this way. I need to restate that, okay? (laughs) In 82, about 18% of the people getting funded were 35 or younger, and only 2% were over 65, okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. Today, about 3.5% are under 35, and about 7.5% are over 65. Wow. So we've seen a big change, and you can see, I mean, there are a number of people, not a huge number, but a number of people getting R01 funding that are over the age of 80 from NIH. So that's changed dramatically, and if you were to look, and it's certainly an issue of a lot of concern in a a lot of policy circles as to why that's been going on. Um, If you look at who's teaching... I think given um, the increase in adjunct faculty and part-time faculty, we'd find more people, we'd find the age distribution having gone the other way.
4: Mm-hmm. Right. So the teaching responsibilities have gotten progressively younger. And the... I think
6: that's right. But the, I mean, that's what all the data would suggest, but they are not really good databases out mm-hmm. there that delineate um, demographic characteristics of people in adjunct positions.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. So I feel like when, when we hear those kind of data points, I, I would say I point the finger at having too much supply of you know, these young PhD students, and then not enough demand in regards to, or maybe I'm saying it the opposite way. The NIH doesn't have enough money, so it just becomes hyper-competitive and then all these other PhD students are now fighting for these adjunct faculty positions that pay really poorly. But like, hey, it's a job. Um, so is that kind of consistent with what you see? Well, I
6: think I mean I think that's definitely part of it. I also think that the age distribution of who's getting funding at NIH of when when you get funded has changed dramatically over time. So it, it used to be that a very large, that, that if you got a Ph.D. in the biomedical sciences, that you could get onto a tenure-track position, and it looked very likely that you could get funding, if you were to get funding by the time you're 37 or 38. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the data right in front of me right here, but now um, it's the, the age at first receipt of funding is about 43. Uh, so so it, it's been a huge... Um, there's been a pushback as to when people get funding. And I think that relates partly, but not, just a small part, that people are slightly older when they get into a tenure-track position. Mm -hmm. It's also, um, there's a lot of concern that NIH has become increasingly Mm risk-averse, and you put your money on proven bets, and proven bets are usually people who have already had funding, and are getting continuations, so that's another part of it. And then also there's strong incentives, and incentives are something economists think a lot about. There's strong incentives to wait to put in your NIH first R01 grant until you've got really great preliminary data, Mm -hmm. and that makes people really um, submit their first proposal at a a later career stage than they have in the past. I think the need to have very, very convincing data also relates very much to NIH's um, risk aversion in some sense.
4: Wow. So, do we have that kind of data, uh, or? What kind? Which, which we, piece of that? Do uh, any of them. <laughs> do we have a... well, we
6: have very good data on the age of first award from mm-hmm. NIH, but that's very, very good data. Right. and. And we know characteristics of who's getting funding. I think it's, it's very, it's very, um, the, the whole issue of risk aversion is something that's become very, um, very talked about among people in scientific circles. For example, there was an article in the Proceedings of the National Academy about two years ago that had as co-authors, Bruce Alberts, and Bruce Alberts, was the past editor of the Journal Science and the past president of the National Academy. And then another co-author on this was Harold Varmus, and Harold Varmus is a Nobel laureate who, as you all probably know, was head of NIH, and um, a a third author was Shirley Tillman, who's a geneticist and had just stepped down as being president of Princeton. And one of their discussion points in this article was they're concerned that NIH should really become risk-averse. Mm-hmm. Now, it's it really hard to measure risk aversion, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's more in the eye of the beholder, but there are, um, I'm working with colleagues right now in in Belgium on ways to try to measure the riskiness of scientific research, at least on certain bibliometric indicators. and. It certainly would appear that papers that are that have more risk associated with them have a harder time getting acceptance from the science among peer science.
0: Um, so I have a question: Do you think that there? Um, so there's a lot of moving parts going on in yeah. funding and science in general. Um, could you speak a little bit about um, certain areas getting more funding than others? is there a topic or, or a field of science let's say that that just gets more funding than others and does that have to do with the scientists that are in that field or is it the media's perception of us like like you said there's a lot of moving parts which one can we pinpoint which one is the cause of why someone gets funded and someone doesn't well
6: let's first of all think about the overall picture and in the United States Compared to other countries and compared to the 1960s and 50s and 70s, the U.S. has had a strong preference to put research into the biomedical sciences over the physical sciences and engineering. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in all the data that NSF collects. Um, The National Science Foundation collects very good data on funding trends, etc., Um, And I think that's for a variety of reasons that we've had such a strong preference for supporting research in the biomedical sciences. But I think a large part of it is that that's something that the public can relate very much to. It's something that the public can lobby Congress for. And it didn't hurt that over a very long period of time, the median age of both senators and people in the House of Representatives had gotten older, mm-hmm. and they certainly care, people seem to care more about their health as they get older. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely been, I think, an issue in the United States, and it's an issue in part because a lot of the things that have led to health breakthroughs and to um, treatments um, or diagnoses, such as the MRI and the laser, have certainly not come out of research in the biomedical sciences, but came out of research in the physical sciences.
4: So do you feel that there are other um, countries around the world that have substantial research programs that are, um, that are doing a little bit more research in those fields now uh, by comparison? Um,
6: by comparison like, to the U.S.? Yes. Well, I think that the, the data suggests that the U.S., um, spends a higher percent of our research budget on the biomedical sciences than most other countries. And that would be true of almost all countries in Europe.
4: Uh, gotcha.
6: I see. Um, For example, France and Italy are countries that have invested um, prob- this is not more, but I'm talking about a percent of what they invest in the physical sciences than has the U.S., I
3: see. Do you think it has to do, um, so lately we've been hearing a lot about the word innovation um, and, you know, it's become a buzzword. It. Do you think that is something that um, has pushed onto some areas getting more funded, the public probably getting more attention to it and so they like support it more and does that you know, translates onto Congress and then getting funded and the NIH and so on and so forth. Do you think that buzzword innovation has anything to do in how the public is perceiving science and how we are getting funded?
6: I think there there are a couple of things to think about. First of all, a lot of funding or some funding for science does not just come from the government that comes from private donors, and if you look at what private donors are giving universities for research, it's heavily, heavily focused on cures for specific diseases, and um, medical schools are very aware of this and now put development officers with physicians who are treating patients to, in, their, in their hospitals. To, um, to encourage grateful patients to make contributions to, um, to research, and a lot of that research is very, very applied research. So, I think that there's a lot of pressure on the system to try to, um, to come up with cures for um, diseases that grateful donors are particularly interested in. They're you can go and find a, a number of examples of that. I also think that the public has put puts a great deal of pressure on on Congress. The public puts pressure on Congress and Congress puts pressure on NIH for what can be called translational research or research that can can rather in a shorter time horizon be translated into having um, seen effects or to have. To have an economic impact on, on treatment or um, or an outcome, hmm. and I I think that that can be. I think universities also see this with a having um we we tend to sell universities as having made big impacts, economic impacts, and that's true. The research shows that lots of that lots of very innovative. Um, new technologies have come out of universities, but people lose sight of the fact that many, many times the lags between this research and having an effect are extremely long. I mean, extremely long. They can be 30, 40, 50 years. So I'm, a, I'm concerned, and I've been concerned as I study um, innovation and in, in universities. I'm very concerned that universities oversell how quickly they can have an economic impact. And I worry that that's something that's going to come back and, I should say, bite us. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so something that um, directly affects us in this room that I'm really concerned about is if the age of faculty being higher is increasing and, you know, we need more and more postdocs to even become faculty, so Mm -hmm it's delaying how long it takes us to really get the experience of writing and receiving grants. And we're being put up against these more experienced faculty that have been doing it for decades. Do we have a chance, really?
6: Mm-hmm. Well, one part, there's, there's a piece of good news there, and you do know, I mean, if you're going to NIH for funding, NIH, um, first time people who are proposing to NIH for the first time out mm-hmm. um, have an advantage in terms of the way scoring is done. So, mm-hmm. that does give you a leg up or at least it compensates for the fact that one is up against people with considerably more um, experience and, and considerably um, lengthier CVs. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I think that the, the number of faculty jobs relative to the number of people in postdoc positions is quite small, and I think it's hard to know, it's really hard to know when, um, when it's realistic to have hopes that one will get hired into a tenure-track position. and. Can go into a research position at a university where one gets funding, and when it's time to think about a different kind of career outcome. Wow. Okay, so um, I was on a panel with um, I was on a panel with a chemist from Georgia Tech uh, about, Chemistry. <laughs> about six months ago. I think it, w- it was at Emory University, and he said. I think being a postdoc today is a lot like the U.S. felt during the Vietnam War. It's hard to know when to get out.
2: Oh wow, oh.
6: that's pretty. <laughs> that's telling. This was somebody who mm, was at the who was drafted at the end of the Vietnam War. So, wow. Anyway, I thought it was a interesting statement from somebody <laughs> who had experienced that and mm-hmm. was working with postdocs at Georgia Tech. Right now. Okay,
2: so I have an opinion-based question. So, do you? I'm. I'm. Do you think this is good? Do you think it's bad? Do you think there's any way we can get ourselves out of it? And if so, would that come from the top, as in NIH and NSF um, changing their funding allocations, or would it come from the bottom in terms of maybe like universities hiring more or less graduate students and postdocs? Where you know, what's our best shot at? <laughs> kind of getting out of this somewhat dismal situation.
6: Well, I think the best shot is that it has to come from the top. And the reason I think it has to come from the top is that it's not in the interest of any one university to change the system. Mm I mean, if they do it and they're the only ones who do it, um, it will put them at a disadvantage Mm -hmm. in some sense. And it's going to have to be something that, um, that, all universities or at least research universities um, like Missouri are in some sense required to change their ways. Hmm. And that's why our postdoc report, by the way, one of the, re- one of the six recommendations in our postdoc report is that the salaries for postdoctoral researchers be raised to $50,000 mm-hmm. and that it be NIH who, who implemented that because people look at what NIH says are the NERISA um, stipends, and, and that could have a big effect across the university.
2: So that would even, you know, require the university to f- potentially hire fewer postdocs, right? Like, that would be part of the goal? Like, treat them better and also I ensure...
6: I think that if postdocs have been, on many campuses, postdocs, post-docs have been so inexpensive that there's no incentive to try to think of alternative ways of doing research or alternative ways of structuring the workforce. And we've just perpetuated a system in which um, we create a supply of highly trained people, but the long-term demand in the economy for Mm -hmm. research positions simply hasn't been there. Mm -hmm. And it does not appear that it's growing. Industry has not been putting a lot more money into research and development, and in chemistry, for example, some of the major labs, most of the major labs have closed. So there are fewer jobs in industry for Ph.D.-trained individuals in many fields, and in academia, hasn't been growing nearly rapidly enough to absorb people. Mm -hmm. Now, this could all change if... The United States decided it wanted to double its R&D budget, but uh-huh. I think that's extremely unlikely.
0: So in that, in that vein, what do you think the future of science will be like in regards to, I guess, everything we've discussed, really?
6: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think science is, I mean, first of all, I think that things are really changing. Um, they're changing, I, They're changing in the sense that most faculty members that I now speak with, and I've been lecturing on issues related to the scientific workforce for at least 20 years, and people used to say, oh, there are no problems here at all. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this isn't a problem on our campus, I don't think that's true anymore. Most places are really beginning to be aware that their graduate students and their postdocs are having problems. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that's good. Awareness is always Mm -hmm. good. And with that, I think people are really, there's been a much bigger move. I don't know if it's true on your campus, but it's true at certainly a number of campuses to begin exploring with Ph.D. students early in their careers Mm -hmm. um, what the labor market for Ph.D.s looks like and what alternatives are out there so that people learn early and not when they're a postdoc. Um, Third, I think that the way research is being done at universities, in university labs, is changing a lot. It's changing in part because funding went down. It's changing because you can outsource things. You can buy your engineered mouse now, so you can order it from China and it will (laughs) arrive, and you no longer um, hire a postdoc to do that. Mm-hmm. There's just a whole lot of new technologies, new ways of doing things. And I think that's really going to change how labor-intensive science is. Interesting. I think the demand is going to decline.
0: Um, well, we're actually about to run out of time, so that's um, sorry to cut you short there. But I did want to take a moment to announce your talk for anyone who is in Columbia, Missouri. It's on Wednesday, April 13th from 12.30 to 1.30 p.m. in the ACUF Auditorium in the Medical School Edition at the School of Medicine. And um, you were kind enough to give us an hour with graduate students at 9 a.m. in 125 Chemistry, so any graduate students out there. And then I believe you also have a time at 10 for postdocs? Very cool. So, um, if anyone's interested, I highly recommend they come. And uh, thank you so much, Dr. Stevens, for great. coming. great. I really enjoyed speaking with you. <laughs> thank, you. Very much. thank you. Thank
6: you. Look forward
3: to seeing you. Yes, absolutely. Look forward to meeting you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. 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 Thank you. And that will do for our show this week. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you are listening to the Big Electron on KCU eighty-eight point one FM. Have a great week, and we'll be back uh, next week.